0: In the last session, I mentioned Adam naming all of the animals and doing it as fast as the Lord paraded them by. And one of the ladies uh, talked about that briefly. So let me bring you up on this. How could Adam name all of the animals? First of all, how many animals were there? We're going to talk about, in this session, we're going to talk about the evolution model. And then I'm going to give you an outline for the creation model. If we had an entire week, there would not be time to give you all of the creation model. You actually need that book back there, The Crystalline Canopy, which will give you all the data. And this is the latest publication. First of all, how many animals were there? You know, we have over a million different insects, different kinds of insects, over a million Most of them have visited our house. (laughs) But he didn't name the insects, didn't need to. It was the animals that God paraded by. So we think, all right, there's a collie dog. There's a German shepherd. There's a wolf, the basic stock. Did he parade the terriers by? No, he paraded the basic stock by the dog, the canine. And then the felines, the cats. Well, are we going to get the big Bengal tigers? We're going to get the little house cats? All of them in one. It's the cat kind. Each one of those has the same genetic stock. But you isolate certain traits by interbreeding. It's like, remember the Black Angus, the Guernsey? Remember the cattle? The basic stock has all of the genetic information, but if you want a particular trait, you isolate and isolate and isolate, it's like the red heifer. In order to get the red heifer for sacrifice with in the rebuilt temple, you going to have to isolate and isolate because one little hair that's a different color disqualifies the red heifer. So, You isolate and isolate until you get the dominant stock. But then if that stock can mate with all the other of its kind, and you broaden that information back to what it was to begin with. Originally, it was one kind. Answers in Genesis has done a splendid job of studying what animals can interbreed. What basic stock is there? And they have found that of all of the animals, you only have less than 7,000 kinds. That means you could get on the ark all of the basic kinds. One of the big questions in the controversy between creation versus evolution is you can't get all of those animals on the ark. Well, certainly you can. Even now, what Answers in Genesis has done has been able to show. uh, They have. How many have ever visited the museum up at ICR, Uh, up at uh, Answers in Genesis uh, in Kentucky, just out of Cincinnati? Did you visit the zoo? They have a (coughs) zonkey. What's a zonkey? a zebra and a donkey. Sure, crazy looking thing, but it works. So, you don't need to parade a zebra and a donkey. You preserve your parade a by or the basic kind. All of the horse kind is in one creature. So, if you have 7,000, you double that for the basic kinds, but There's indication for the clean kinds, you have seven sevens. So you still have less than 20,000 animals to put on the ark. Those animals average the size of a sheep. How do you get the big dinosaurs on? Yeah, you take the young. You take the young, first of all, because they have their whole life ahead of them. Secondly, because they're much easier to take care of, I was lecturing some years ago at a Christian school in the Waco area and uh, they had all the grades there. So I described how big the dinosaurs were. And what dinosaurs dinosaurs cover a broad range. What's the biggest dinosaur ever discovered? Okay, used to be Brontosaurus, but it's now Argentinosaurus. Argentina, they thought it was Seismosaurus discovered out in Utah. Uh, his femur was taller than this ceiling. So why did they name him Seismosaurus? Not S-I-Z-E-M-O-S-A-U-R-U-S, but S-E-I-S-M-O-S-A-U-R-U-S. Why? When he walked, shook the earth. When he walked it shook the earth. <laughs> Seismosaurus. But he's not the biggest. Argentinosaurus was bigger than that. And then they found a teenager dreadnought. They named him dreadnought because of the big British ship dreadnought that he dreaded none. He was the biggest. So dreadnought wasn't quite as big as Argentinosaurus, but he wasn't full grown either. So those were the big dinosaurs. From snout to tail, they were 140 feet long. They could raise their heads 70 feet in the air. The smallest of the dinosaurs, and we're talking about getting all of these on the ark. The smallest of the dinosaurs was discovered in Australia just two years ago, less than 24 inches long. Gallienosaurus, Gallinosaurus dorisi. Say that with me. Gallienosaurus dorisi. Gallien, it's Gallienosaurus. Gallienosaurus dorisi. What's the name of the smallest dinosaur? So you go home and tell your kids, I know the smallest dinosaur, Gallienosaurus d'Orissi. Oh, really? Okay. Is that what you learned? Yeah. Okay. So what was the biggest dinosaur? Okay. Argentinosaurus. How high could he raise his head? 70 feet in the air. How long was he? 140 feet long. But those were not the tallest dinosaurs. The tallest dinosaur wasn't quite as long as the others, but he could raise his head 75 feet in the air. His name is Saur Poseidon Prutellus. Say that name with me, Saur Poseidon Prutellus. Why are you having us memorize these names? Because he's the guy who made those big tracks at Glen Rose. And Texas has to have the biggest of everything. <laughs> We don't have the biggest, but we have the tallest. Oh, by the way, they also did find his neck in Oklahoma, a neck bone, and it looked like a big tree trunk. And they found his footprints, his footprints in Oklahoma, Texas first, then they found him in Oklahoma, they found his neck bone, a big neck vertebrae in Oklahoma, and they found his footprints in Morocco. But at least Texas has to somehow get involved. So how do you get those dinosaurs on the ark? Not eggs, just the juveniles because all of them came on the ark themselves. You need to come see the Creation Evidence Museum. When you're there, go upstairs to see our 25-foot scale replica. In a little locked, enclosed case, you'll see a little bronze dog could be the oldest bronze in the world, it came from Mount Ararat. It came from Korhan HaShem, that's the village, the tradition in that area is that Shem and his wife, after they came off the ark, Shem and his wife built that village, The, the basic footings are still there, small village, started their family, later migrated away. So it's the house of Shem, Korhan is house, Hashim of Shem, Korhan Hashim. Among those footings, a Turkish archaeologist discovered this little dog. Well, what are you doing with it? Well, our team climbed Mount Ararat in 1990. The last night at Togobayazit, at the base of Mount Ararat, our guide-slash-attorney-slash-interpreter came, brought this Turkish archaeologist. And he uh, had this little dog. We are authorized, we're chartered to receive uh, this sort of artifact legally. I can't tell you how much he wanted for it. But I can tell you that I used everything I had except enough money to get back to New York to get it. Why? What is it? It's a little dog, a little bronze dog. On each ear is an insect, two insects. On his back are two birds. On his back are two snakes. Around his neck is slung a ferret, and the mate to the ferret is slung around his belly we have any biology teachers here? Anyone teach biology? Anyone ever take biology? <laughs> All of you, sure. You'll recognize these are the four primary divisions of terrestrial biology. The insects, the birds, the avians, the reptiles, and the mammals. So I asked the Turkish archaeologist how he explained that little bronze artifact. He said, I think it was made by Shem because I found it in the footings of the house he built. Nothing but the footings are existing there. Now, he said, I think it was made by Shem to show his children what he saw coming on the ark, a little dog bringing his buddies to safety. Now, there's no way we can prove that, but I sure like his story, and it certainly fits the context, and the explanation remains with the discoverer, so while we can't prove it, I sure like his story. So how many? There's enough room, if the animals average the size of a sheep, there's enough room on one level of the ark to accommodate all all of the animals in their cages, an entire level for the food supply, and an entire level for Mrs. Noah to get away from the old guy who got her on the boat. (laughs) I mean, after about six months, I've had enough of this. Well, sweetheart, aren't you glad I didn't leave you? So she needed space, and everybody needed space, and there's plenty of room. And uh, there are a lot of questions. I'm going to try to stop soon enough for Q&A. How do they have lighting? How do they feed them all, et cetera, et cetera, but that's not the purpose right now. We're talking about the creation model. So the ark works. Noah, uh, God paraded all the animals by Adam, and Adam could name them. So he only has to name about 7,000. So was he smart enough to do that? Absolutely. Let me talk to you for a moment about your brain. You have a hundred billion brain cells. Oops. I know to stay away from there. Thank you, brother. You have a hundred trillion, and I'm sorry, they used to think it was hundred. It is 67.2 now, the latest information. I don't know who did the counting, but 67.2 trillion cells in your body, 67.2 trillion cells. They used to call it 100 a, a trillion, but now they realize not everybody is as fat as the lecturer today. So we have, on average, 67.2 trillion cells in, a, in an adult human body. Of those, you have 100 billion brain cells. Now we're talking about real science. Of a 100 billion brain cells. That 100 billion brain cells is sufficient. Every person in this room, child, adult, senior adult, everyone has the potential. You may not have the education. I personally know individuals who have this. I do not have this education. You can't do everything. You need to select what you do. You may not have the education and the training but you have the capability if you have that training. Every person in this room can measure the distance to the farthest star, can weigh the mass of the universe, and can interpret the signals given off throughout the universe. Every person here has the ability, the capability of doing that. You would have the ability if you had the right training. All with that 100 billion brain cells. In the book, you will learn that your brain is so unique and in some of the notes you have, the uniqueness of the human brain, your brain actually anticipates problems, works out solutions, gives you the inclination to perform that all without you knowing it's doing it all the same time you're talking to your wife. Where did you want to stop and shop? But your brain works out when you should stop at the red light. That fellow crossing over there is you're not supposed to hit. Your brain works out problems without your ever knowing a problem was there. You are incredibly intelligent. Every second, your brain receives over 100 million signals from around you. Temperature, light, Every second, a hundred million signals and processes all of those to every cell in your body. Wow, you are incredibly intelligent. If you learn something new every second of your life, I mean, something something new, something new, something new. It would take you over three million years to use up your brain's capacity. Something new. Something new. Something new. Over three million years. But we don't learn something new every second of our life. Most of the time, we're out to recess. It's called pizza, it's called golf. It's called shopping. That's our favorite subject in school, recess. Why sure? So, actually, we only use about a quarter of that time learning something new. So you have to multiply that three times 12. So your brain could go on for 12 million years without using up its capacity. However, that's not all the story. Are you getting all this? You lost half your brain cells before you were born. Genetically, every one of us produced 200 billion brain cells. Why did we end up with only half that many brain cells? You see, while the mother is gestating that child, and that fetus is a child, by the way, from the split second of conception on, that is a living, eternal being. And all the class said, Amen. 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 While the mother is gestating that child, She's providing nutrients and oxygen to that child, but it takes most of the oxygen for her just to get by. That kid's kicking. That kid's growing. He's using up her supply. So, most in our atmospheric pressure, what is our current atmospheric pressure? This is real important at class time. What's the atmospheric pressure at sea level? Pounds per square inch. Yeah, said 15. 14.7 pounds per square inch. You need to write that down, I remember it. 14.7 PSI, we rounded off to 15 PSI, pounds per square inch. At sea level, it's that atmospheric pressure that drives that oxygen into the blood plasma and permits you just to go like that and breathe. You got oxygen, you got oxygen. Just, Just like that, it's the atmospheric pressure. Okay, the mother is using that oxygen And the child is getting secondary oxygen. Okay, pause. Got to get one step and then another. Have to get it right. In the third trimester, the body organs have already been in place. It's an awesome experience. In the third trimester, the brain is developing. Every day in the third trimester, That child's brain produces millions, not thousands, millions of new brain cells. But in six to ten minutes of oxygen deprivation, a brain cell dies. So here's this child growing millions of new brain cells to make the conjunction. Millions of new brain cells. But the mother can't give him quite enough oxygen, so most of those new brain cells die after 10 minutes, and they're flushed out the plumbing. Aren't you thankful for the plumbing? Otherwise, you'd be an airhead. So by the time we're born, we have flushed out a hundred billion brain cells but genetically, we produce them. So even with that, we could still go on how many million years without using up our brain capacity? Twelve. You got it. Most people say three. You're awake. Hey, way to go, class. You are here. Twelve million years without using our brain, up our brain capacity. Hold on. I had a... I received communication from a publishing neurologist, printed communication at Arizona State University. He found that in the synaptic connections, your brain has cells in synaptic connections. In those connections, there's a separate computer so that your brain has the computing power of a desktop computer in every one of those connections. He calculated, I had the mathematician calculate, and some of these figures are in the book, Crystal and Canopy. Some of them are in some of your notes. Calculated. that with that computing ability in the synaptic connections between the brain cells and the rest of the computing ability, the human brain with 100 billion brain cells could go on without losing its capacity 10 billion quadrillion years. Please write that down. 10 billion quadrillion Years. Now let's apply this to evolution, 10 billion quadrillion years. That's over a billion times longer than the evolutionist believes the universe will exist. The universe is running down. It's over a billion times longer. Do you understand what I just said? You were created with a facility, not just a potential, a facility that the universe could never produce. You had to be designed by our Creator. That's the whole point. But now that's only a hundred billion brain cells genetically every one of us produced 200 billion brain cells. Do you know what I just said? I just said without saying it, that your physical brain proves that you were designed to go on forever and forever, and forever, and forever, and forever, without ever using up your brain's potential. Evolution can't hold a candle to that. If you get the facts lined up, we spent the whole last session chasing kids, but did we learn anything? They didn't get, they got the facts, but you gotta have them straight. The evolutionists know how many brain cells we have. They can calculate, they just don't apply it to the point. And I used to be an evolutionist, so I understand how they think. They just don't apply it properly and line it up to show the universe didn't produce us. Given an eternity of time, the universe couldn't produce. The brain, that could go on for an eternity. Only God can do that. Now, we've got 40 minutes left. Our speaker is long-winded, but we need this. This is the model of evolution. We're trying to line it up right. This is what you see in the textbook. This is the geologic column according to that geologic column, you go from the earliest fossils in the Cambrian, you have a few uh, bacteria in the Precambrian, you go from that up to Silurian, so that's called the Paleozoic era, that's called the Mesozoic era, the era of the dinosaurs, that's called the Cenozoic era up to modern times. So you see it in the textbook like that. But the leading evolutionist, Will admit it's not really a column, it's an oval. Class time. According to this theory, there was a big bang. Well, a big bang never, an explosion in a print shop never produced a book, didn't produce a line of intelligence. But they have to use the big bang, otherwise, they have to admit there was a designer. I can hardly wait till tomorrow night to tell you about Sir David Otway Ray, one of the world's most brilliant individuals, and he was a part of our team of of scientists. By the way, not all intelligent people are evolutionists. He was originally an atheist, but God straightened him out. Another member of our think tank is Wanda Madsen, Dr. Wanda Madsen. Some time ago, uh, Dr. Madsen wrote a technical paper, sent it to NASA, proposing an experiment. And they said, why didn't we think of that? They ran the experiment in space, turned out to be one of their most productive experiments from this little girl named Wanda, Wanda Madsen. She was 10 years old when she wrote that technical paper. Her IQ is 220 the average is what? Well, 140 is gifted. The average is 100. That's the mean, 100. She's two people in one, one of the world's most brilliant individuals. And you can't make 220. 200 is the threshold, but she kept making beyond what they asked, so they finally had to give it to her. And is she an evolutionist? No. She's a born-again creationist. So don't let anybody browbeat you. Okay, watch real closely. According to this theory, there was a Big Bang about 13.6 billion years ago. Trash, debris from that Big Bang. Remember that concept. Debris from that Big Bang, trash. Settled in the arm of Orion of the Milky Way galaxy formed our solar system and our earth and about 5.6 4.6 billion years ago The earth was cool enough to begin to produce life forms Now how did it produce life? Well, no fair asking that. Is there any way to prove it? No fair asking any way to prove it. It just, it has, has to be naturalistic or it's not scientific. Now, wait a minute. Good science got us to the moon and back. Good science produced that cell phone that you rely on. My cell phone's a computer. I have over 250 PowerPoint programs on my cell phone. So if I'm getting ready to lecture somewhere, While the other fellow speaking, I just run across my PowerPoint program right there, put it on my desk and go up and teach the lesson. Put it on my belt and go up and teach the lesson. 250 PowerPoint programs on a little cell phone. And by the way, you can talk on those things too. So, good science produced that. But good science does not say we came from amoeba. Good science understands where the application is, but most scientists do not want to accept to give an accountability to God, therefore they rule him out in the very formula, and that's unfortunate, but stay with us these two days. Okay, according to that theory, 13.6 billion years ago there was a big bang. 4.6 billion years ago the earth and our solar system was cool enough to begin to produce life forms. Those life forms were like trilobites. They graduated. This is the pre-Cambrian, and then we get to the Cambrian, and we get to the Paleozoic era, the dim distant past, then the introduction of the dinosaurs, the Mesozoic era, the introduction of mammals, and ultimately we come to the universe realizing its own existence in the mind Of one man, Charles Darwin. He's the hero of the plot, not because he had superior scientific knowledge, but because he simply stated that the universe is not a result of God's creation, but the universe produced itself and he he had some natural selection concepts, natural selection only preserves what is already there. Natural selection works, but it doesn't create any new higher information. Okay, watch closely. But this concept is not really a column, it's an oval for this reason. If you speak with the leading evolutionary scholars, here's what they say, whoops, what's that rat doing there? He's not supposed to be there. Well, there he is. His name is Morgana Codon El Roy. He's at the Smithsonian, at least a replica of him is at the Smithsonian. When I first began excavating in Glen Rose, we found some cat prints in rock that's supposed to be that old according to evolution. And I have a habit of going on radio and television and talking. And had my own television program for 11 years, had 7 million viewers when it was shown in prime time. So somebody's listening. And that little girl in Fiji was listening. Remember the first lecture this morning? What did she say? What did that little girl say? Yeah, what are those five? The professor had said there are three. Oh, by the way, I talked to the professor after class. And I said, Really? Well, yeah. Okay, what are those five? Time, force, energy, space, and space, space, mass. Mass. mass, that's right. Got it, you didn't sleep through class. All right, okay. How many brain cells do you have? You said 100,000? Some of us only have 100,000, yeah. 100 billion. Uh, how many did you genetically produce? Okay, twice that many. What happened to them? Hang with me, hang with me. Uh, they, they died. They died and got flushed out the plumbing. Why did they die? Lack of oxygen. Well, what if you had lived in the world before the flood? Hang with me. we got time. It's six hours till dark. <laughs> You'll be right back. Okay, good. So, if evolution is true... Okay, what's, what's that rat doing there? When I first started excavating Glen Rose, We excavated a big cat track. I started talking about that on radio and television. And the evolutionists target me from every direction. I'm the most targeted creationist in the world, literally. That's fine, I sleep well when I get a chance. Uh, So they said, there weren't any mammals there until they found Morganicodon el themselves. And they said, whoops, uh, okay, mammals did evolve at that time. Did they change what they said about me? No. Are they going to? No. When they get to eternity, are they going to? No. Class time. We get the idea that when we die, if you're unsaved, and go to hell, and that's where you do go if you've reached the age of accountability. Hell is real. We get the idea, okay, oh, oh, I was wrong, I was wrong, I was wrong. The scripture says, he that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is unbelieving, let him be unbelieving still. That's, that's the pronouncement. Well, what about uh, Dives, the rich man? By the way, his riches didn't send him to heaven, uh, to hell. And they won't get you to heaven either. If you, well, wasn't he concerned about people? He was concerned about his own brothers and his well-being, and that was all. He didn't change anything. Nothing changed. So those that curse me and curse you, by the way, they don't just curse me, they cuss me. There is a difference. Those that curse because I stand for creation, are they going to be doing that in eternity? You bet. And that's terrible. Those who curse God, are they going to forever? They're not going to change. There's never going to be peace for them. What am I saying? Go to your neighbor this afternoon and say, would you come with me tomorrow to church? There's a creationist who's going to speak. Oh, I don't like creation. Well, okay, I'm an atheist. Okay, well, maybe you can come and find where he's wrong. Get him here. And the next Sunday, bring him back for the preacher. we got to reach him now. And all the class said, Amen. amen. Okay, more time. So now they're admitting they're there. But watch closely. So what's going to happen as the billions of years pass? What's going to happen? If there's enough mass, and this is in the technical literature, if there's enough mass in the universe, it's going to collapse back upon itself. It began as a big bang, fiery explosion, and it's going to end in the big crunch. That's the technical name in the technical literature. If God didn't do it, if the universe created itself, if there's enough mass in the universe, it's going to collapse back upon itself in the big crunch. Or, if there is not enough mass in the universe, you see the galaxies are expanding farther and farther and farther apart. Brother Andrew, I hope you use this PowerPoint a hundred times over but don't take nearly as long as I'm taking. It's yours, it's on your hard drive. The galaxies are expanding expanding farther and farther apart, so if they get so far apart that they cannot collapse upon each other, the universe will die in the big freeze. That's hot, that's cold. It'll lose energy to the point where there's absolute zero, Nothing moves, big freeze, or if it's pretty well balanced so that it's not going to collapse back upon itself or freeze from lack of energy, it's going to die in the big fizzle (laughs) because of the second law of thermodynamics, entropy. Everything's running down. And it's not rewinding. Class, what did I just say? The basis for evolution is there is no hope anywhere. Nobody's going anywhere. You better get all you can because this is all you're going to get. You better live it up now because there's nothing after this. If evolution is true. That's the reason we Christians are targeted. We creationists are targeted academically. You can hold tenure at all major universities in the world and be an atheist. You can hold tenure and be a Buddhist, an Islamist. Nobody can do anything about it. But if you are an outspoken Christian creationist, even with tenure, you can be fired. Why? Because we have hope. And we offer hope. We know the Creator. One of the lectures I considered giving, but I had to build a foundation was, can we identify the Creator? Yes, we can. Scientifically, yes, we can. There's a short three-page lesson in your notes on identifying the Creator. The full lecture takes three or four hours to give. We we know the Creator. We know who the Creator is. But that's not all. We can know Him personally. And we can spend eternity. And we can know our loved ones. And we can see Grandma and Grandpa. We offer hope and we have hope. Do you know what sent Jesus to the cross, humanly speaking? Envy. Envy. Envy is a dirty, dirty, dirty word beyond jealousy. Jealousy is you've got something, I don't like it, and I want it. But envy is, you've got something I don't have, and I'm going to destroy you and it too. That's envy. Humanly speaking, that generation crucified Jesus. He was crucified by the determinant counsel and foreknowledge of God. We know that. But they envied him because he said, I know the Father. The Father and I are one. And he performed the miracles to show it. And he showed them what was wrong with themselves, and they envied him. He's got something. Not only do are we jealous of it, we're going to destroy him because we can't have it. Jealousy is, you got something, I'm going to get it if I can. Envy is, you got something, I'm going to destroy you and it because I can't have it. Okay. We're targeted because we know who the Creator was. <clears throat> We can know him. We offer a future. Even we offer it to them. Do you know what their answer is? My daddy died as an atheist, and I'm going to die an atheist. Wow. Let me tell you something about that. That daddy may not have died as an atheist. Because Christ is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. We don't get the gospel to everybody because we're kind of selfish, aren't we? We like Ferraris rather than mission fields. Now, to be honest, well, sure, I like to look at a Ferrari. Wouldn't want to drive one. I'm too old. I'd get killed in that thing. Sure, nothing wrong with liking good things. But we haven't done all God wants But God has done all that's necessary. I remember I was not raised in a Christian home. Later, mom and dad got saved. But I remember in a cursing home, we went to bed with the chickens when I was a kid. you ever hear that phrase? That didn't didn't mean they were here. (laughs) But when it's time for the chickens to go to bed, We didn't have electricity in our house in San Antonio at that point. We got it later. So we had to go to bed. I remember the sun setting. I looked out at a sunset. Nobody had ever told me there was a God. I knew there was a God. And I knew I wasn't right with him. Christ is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So God keeps his end of the bargain. Okay, let's get a little progress here. All right. They've got a problem with this. The whole point I've tried to make in the last 10 minutes is the theory of evolution offers no hope. You're going to die like a dog. By the way, God is going to make up all things to us. And there may be a time in the millennium and the eternal ages when Things we've lost, animals we've lost, will be made up to us. That's Okay, the theory of evolution is it began with a big bang, it's going to end with a big explosion or a big freeze or a big fizzle, but it doesn't work. Interconnecting every one of those eras, epochs, and periods of time, interconnecting all of those, are polystrate fossils. You need to know that. What is a polystrate fossil? Well, what does poly mean? many, more than one, many. Straight, that's stratum, those are layers of rocks. There are polystrate fossils all over the world that run right up through, that one's running through five million years of supposed evolutionary time. Did you get that? It covered just a few days but according to evolution it took five million years for those rock layers to form. But we have a replica of that at the museum. At the bottom is coal, it's coal, the roots of it is coal, and it runs right up through, how many million years of evolutionary time? Five, but it really took just a few days because every 12 hours, you have a new layer laid down because of the effect of the moon. Polystrate fossils interconnect all of these so that everything is young, it's recent. Watch. In every one of these geologic columns, geologic periods have been found human artifacts that were left in a flood, and every one of them. In sedimentary deposit, sedimentation, sedimentary deposits can only form by water, mixing the mud, having the right chemicals, water being drained off, and then it hardens like the concrete on our parking lot out here. And every one of these layers has been found man-made artifacts. We have at the Creation Evidence Museum eight of these. We have in one place more artifacts found in the geologic column where man is not supposed to be more than any other entity on earth. You need to visit that little old museum, the Creation Evidence Museum. And by the way, it was established as an arm of a local independent fundamental, King James, Bible-believing Baptist church. Would you tell the preacher, my conviction is the same as his, the local church is God's authority. In the beginning, God created... Oh, you got all that. How many uh, scientific parameters are there? Five. In the beginning, that's... Time. God is the ultimate force. Here, for scientific purposes, force. Created, that's energy, the heaven that's and the earth, and that's mass. Wow, okay, you got it. Learn something today. I like this because the outline in the back indicates that our earth is very special and it's being carried close to the heart of God. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. Is that scientific? Can you listen real fast? You got twenty minutes till lunchtime. I intended for Q and A, but listen real fast, and at least we'll get the basis of the creation model. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. Is that scientific? Hmm. Dr. Seth Putterman, UCLA advanced physics department, and a graduate student took a flask of water, just a flask of H2O. They had a sophisticated device that generated acoustical energy. They had a jam box. But they were able to make that energy precise. So they had a flask of water, An instrument that generated sound, and they aimed that sound at the center of that flask of water. And when they tweaked it at the right hertz, to their amazement, in the middle of that flask of water appeared a bubble just from the sound. This was the birth of the science of sonoluminescence. They had a sophisticated device, generated sound at a particular hertz vibration frequency. In the middle of that flask appeared a bubble. That bubble heated, later they measured. What I'm going to tell you, I wouldn't have believed it were it not in the technical literature, but it is. It heated to 100,000 degrees Fahrenheit and self-insulated. And the flask didn't explode. You understand what I just said? That sound produced a bubble that heated to what temperature? 100,000 degrees Fahrenheit. It's pretty hot. But it's self-insulated. And from that, in all directions radiated full-spectral light. Wow. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters and God said, let there be light and, and, and there was light. Oh, but that old book is a religious book. Oh, well, it gives the way to God, but it builds a foundation scientifically that if we know enough, we cannot, cannot refute. So not only is verse 1 scientific, verse 2 is scientific. Wow. Hold on to that old book. Okay. And, the, and there was light. God saw the light. God can see, by the way. But it was good. Verse number 6, and God said, let there be a firmament. That is illustrated by these little pink lines. Is that scientific? The word for firmament there is translated properly in the King James. Most of the modern translations interpret it, translated as expanse, but it's the Hebrew word rakia, rakia. That means to compress, pound together, and stretch out the arch of heaven in thin metal or crystalline sheets. Is that possible? Well, the Bible said it, so we just had to take it on faith. But until two weeks ago, there was no publication anywhere that showed how that could scientifically happen. In the book I gave the preacher this morning, Crystalline Canopy, early in the book are the mathematics of professor, the late professor, my dear personal friend. Edward Boudreaux, physical chemist, PhD, he and his graduate student, Eric Baxter, were able to demonstrate. I raised the money and paid for their salary while they were doing this. It took them six months to do it. They were able to find a substance, a crystalline substance on Earth that in two millimeters, a millimeter is like that, two millimeters is a little over a half an inch, about that thick, two millimeters thick. The physics of the earth with the earth's magnetic field, physics of the earth could hold that in suspension above the earth. So in that book is demonstrated for the first time in history that it is possible that we can demonstrate for the first time in history that what the Bible says about that canopy could be scientifically verified. And it's in that book and that's the only place it's verified anywhere. Took 40 years of research to be able to do that. So what if we had that canopy in place? We don't have it. It rained down at the time of the flood. We don't have it anymore. What if we had it in place? The light, here is the moon closer to the earth. Here's the distant sun. Those should be the same size. The light coming in from the sun reflected by the moon. Tomorrow morning we'll talk more about what the moon has to say to us from the pulpit. The light from the sun today streams right in. We don't have that canopy any longer, that firmamental canopy called the rachia, the firmament. It rained down at the time of the flood. That's part of the water that we have. So the light streams right in. What does it do to us? That light strips oxygen of an electron. Oxygen's very friendly. So it's looking for a partner. So it Binds it has to fill that space, that the, the cosmic light has stripped of an electron, it has to take an electron and pair up. So it pairs up with all sorts of things: sulfur and manganese, and this is called free radical. UCLA published that every day, every cell in our body is assaulted up to 10,000 times by free radicals. How do you stop doing that? Stop breathing? What's the problem? It's oxygen that is radicalized. Straight oxygen, great. But the rays of the sun, because we don't have that canopy, I'm trying to tell you that's one reason we don't live to be 900 years old. Trying to tell you that's the reason we can explain how Adam did live to be. How old? 930. 930. How old did his wife live to be? The Bible doesn't say. Did you say you're not important? No, no, no. I'll tell you the reason. Ladies tend to outlive the men and use their insurance money to go shopping. I mean, keep going, keep going. Ladies can take burdens easier than we men can. If it weren't for you ladies, we wouldn't be here. Let's give a hand to the ladies. Yeah. Adam lived to be 930 years. Who was the oldest man? Methuselah. How old did he live? 969. Do you understand that God was good to Methuselah? He lived to be the oldest recorded man in in history. But he died in the year of the flood. How many people responded to Noah's gospel message? Only his immediate family. You mean Methuselah? God was so kind that he gave him 969 years. You mean he didn't respond? Apparently not. Wow. Just because you're born in a preacher's family doesn't mean you're going to heaven. You've got to get saved. Okay, so it's the free radicals we're assaulted up to 10,000 times, every cell 10,000 times, because we don't have that canopy. That's one reason we don't live so long. But that's not all. Let's wind it up with at least this. In the days of Peleg, the earth divided. Geophysicists have found at least two disruption areas inside the globe, at least two, where there was a, ma- there was a universal or global um, meltdown, radioactive meltdown. One of those could be explained as the initiation of the flood, the other in the days of Peleg. In the days of Peleg, the earth expanded. The earth was divided in the days of Peleg. You'll find that in Genesis chapter 10. The earth was divided. The earth expanded in the days of Peleg. The only scientific plausible candidate to expand a whole globe is thermonuclear reaction, a nuclear reaction. So. In the days of Peleg, the earth expanded in diameter. It is wider now than it was before the flood. Today, it's about 5%. It's like that to that. That's pre-flood illustration of the globe. The last moments. What difference would that make if the earth were smaller in diameter? We know that the oxygen ratio was higher. What's the oxygen ratio now? 14.7 14.7 is the atmospheric pressure, right? Oxygen is 21% on good days in the country. But in our metropolitan areas, the percentage is smaller, but we calibrate by the 21, so 21%. We have evidence with uh, in certain fossils that would hold bubbles of air that we had about 25% oxygen before the flood. want to get this in closing. So we had, today we have 14.7 pounds per square inch. We have 21% oxygen. The oxygen level was about 25%, not 21, it was slightly higher. But the atmospheric pressure, if you shrink the globe back 5%, physics take over, you maintain the same mass, but you shrink the volume, you compress the volume. I'm sorry. Uh, Yes, uh, you uh, maintain the same mass, but you compress the volume. That would give you slightly greater gravitational attraction. Are you with me? Last few minutes. That would pull the atmospheric pressure down, to 24 PSI. You getting this? It's all in the book. The crystal and canopy. What's the atmospheric pressure now? 14.7. What's the oxygen ratio? 20, 20, it's 21. Pre-flood, the oxygen ratio would be 25, but the well, if you shrink it, Five percent, shrink the volume, maintain the same mass, the gravitational attraction brings it to 24 PSI, an increase of just eight and a half. Now that's amazing, oh that's, that's amazing, because at 22 PSI, the entire blood plasma becomes saturated with oxygen. Today, it's only the hemoglobin in the blood that picks up four oxygen molecules. Every hemoglobin molecule picks up four oxygen molecules. But if you had a world with sufficient oxygen that was not <coughs> radicalized because you had a canopy filtering out most of the shortwave radiation, are you there? Are you with me? And your entire blood plasma became saturated with oxygen let me show you what would happen you know why my wife is not here today she's praying for this meeting she's here because she's not here because she's a universal reactor she can't get near anyone with a perfume she'll collapse She was down to skin and bones. I'd had her to 17 specialists. I took her to Dr. William Ray, and he said, you're going to lose your wife. And I said, I'm doing research on hyperbaric oxygen. What I really was saying, I'm doing research on the pre-flood world. (laughs) Because hyperbarics, what's hyperbaric? Greater atmospheric pressure. So I said... Can you get her into a facility where she can take hyperbaric oxygen treatments? And he said, well, I don't know what good it'll do, but sure, I'll arrange it. So we arranged with Texas A&M. Dr. William Fife was the head PhD over that. She had 22 treatments. She would go inside. I would go in with her. We had to pay for hers. He let me go in free because he wanted to know what was going on at the museum. So uh, they had a special helmet with an apron that fit like that, special line of oxygen. So they would put her under two atmospheres of pressure. Pre-flood world was not quite two atmospheres, but two atmospheres worked real well. Give her 100% oxygen for a short time. So the body could assimilate that. Now, we didn't have 100% oxygen before the flood. We had what ratio of oxygen? 25. But they need a quick fix. So one day, so she was taking the treatment, she was feeling better. It was detoxifying her body. One day, we went in, she was in a wheelchair, went in, and he said, Martha, what's that on your foot? She said, oh, I just spilled hot water on it yesterday. It'll be all right. She's a brave lady. She puts up with me. (laughs) How would you like for your husband to be the most hated creationist in the world and for people to cuss him? And I just take and say, well, you want to talk? No, we don't want to talk. Uh, Anyhow, but the wife feels it. The kids feel it. I feel it too, but that's beside the point. Anyhow, so my wife said, I just spilled hot water on it. It'll be all right. He said, that's an oozing wound. He said, we'll take care of that. How many medical doctors do we have here? How many nurses? Good. I'm glad you came. Need you. Okay. How long does it take, if a person's in good health, how long does it take for an open wound to heal on average? I don't know. It depends on how big the wound is. Right. And if it's uh, surface or if it's full incision. But on average, how long? You are right on, lady. It's ten days to three weeks average, depending. If it's a small wound, three to five days. If you're if you're an athlete, and if they're paying you big bucks to get back on the field, (laughs) but uh, ten days to three weeks, right? If you're in good health. She was not in good health, so he said, "We'll take care of this." So we went inside. He uh, closed the hatch. His attendants pumped it up to two atmospheres just slightly above pre-flood. And by the way, how does it feel to be in pre-flood? No, you don't feel any constraint. Your body, you don't have to reach for a breath of air. It's just there. You don't feel, for instance, right now, you don't feel the pressure, the atmospheric pressure 14.7, but it's there. So, under two atmospheres, you don't feel anything except it's so easy to breathe. You feel like you belong. So anyhow, we went in, pumped us up. He put the helmet over her face, the special apron, ran an oxygen line to her face, turned it on so she could breathe pure oxygen for a while. And remember, we didn't have pure oxygen before the flood. Then he took another oxygen line ran it past her ankle, performed a very sophisticated medical procedure. He took a plastic bag and wrapped it with duct tape. (laughs) But that was exactly what was needed. So he enclosed her foot and the wound, wrapped it with duct tape, turned the line on and sat down and said, now tell me about the museum. So for 45 minutes we talked and then my wife tapped me on the shoulder. And through the helmet, I read her lips, I've had enough oxygen for today. Dr. Fife knew what was going on. So he just reached up, turned both lines off, pulled the helmet off, and she smiled. Always feels good. Then he knelt down. Now, how long had it been? 45 minutes. minutes. Now, it was a surface wound, but it was an oozing wound that needed to be healed. It was not an incision. It was a surface wound. It had been 45 minutes. How long is it supposed to take? Yeah, 10 days to three, if you're in good health. He uncrimped that, pulled it back, and that wound was completely healed a beautiful pink in 45 minutes. No wonder people lived so long before the flood. Now the book will give you the whole creation model. It'll give you the stats on what man's IQ was. That is with a hundred billion brain cells. The IQ was minimally 350, closer to 1250. That's with a hundred billion brain cells. You have another hundred billion brain cells for comprehension. That scholar calculated And I used his work in the book, gave him full credit, calculated. The reaction time. Instantaneous reaction. But simultaneously, the additional brain cells would give you instantaneous comprehension. How would you like to know everything you needed to know? And be able to remember it?